This podcast is brought to you by The JCK Show, the premier destination to discover what's new, next, and innovative in the retail jewelry landscape. Be there when the industry reunites at the Venetian Resort and Sands Expo, August 27th through August 30th. Visit jcklasvegas.com to register today. Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk about the new Tiffany campaign, Rolex, and diamond tracking systems. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in, as always, from my home office in LA, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK, jckonline.com, calling in from my son's room. It's not really an office, but uh, it'll do. It's like, I'm looking at SpongeBob here and like a stapler. But um, yeah, from hot, humid New York. And here it is, the summer. I mean, end of july this will probably air early august and it is it feels like the dog days are here i guess it feels like a little slow and i know that the jewelry that's sort of typical at this time certainly july always feels like traditional take a break time you know the news has been really slow the last couple of weeks i have to say but yes july i think traditionally the first two weeks of july have been a vacation time for the diamond industry and then a lot of people take the entire month of august off uh, i don't know what's happening this year necessarily and i think uh you know a lot of the traditional vacation time has kind of been, been eaten away in the new era it's a little laid back let's put it that way it, i mean most of us live in air conditioning but you go out it's a little too hot to be anything but laid back yeah it is and i, can't, I keep thinking about next month, of course, or August, and how we'll all be returning to Vegas for the JCK show, which we haven't done in two years now. Like, how hot is it going to be? I mean, I've never been to Vegas in August, and could it be that much hotter? Isn't it all just always like uniformly, stiflingly hot? I guess it depends on where the weather's going, but uh, to be around so many people, especially like so many people I know, it's going to be very weird. It'll be like social overload. I mean, I think you've got more in the swing than I have. It's definitely to be face to face with so many people I know is going to be a little odd. Yeah. I mean, it will be, but again, I feel pretty confident that for most people that it'll be a little odd at first, but then we'll all just slip right back into these roles that we know so well. I mean, this is such a tradition for us. I mean, my first Vegas was the year 2000, which is crazy and makes me feel ancient, but it's true. You know, like I mark my years by the passing of a JCK. And so the fact that we didn't have one last year, certainly through, well, all kinds of wrenches were thrown into 2020. I mean, I'm super excited. I actually... And this is kind of unbelievable to me. I just extended my stay in Vegas. I called the Palazzo and I added one more night to my reservation. So I will be there a full week, which is exactly what I'd always done in the past. I've gone for Tuesday to Tuesday so I could catch the luxury show from its start this year on August 24th. Then JCK opens on Friday the 27th. And then everything concludes on Monday the 30th. So, I mean, I'm set. I got my reservation. I got my tickets. I'm ready. And the schedule's populating. What about you? Like, are you 
you been making appointments and yeah a lot of people want to get together and i have to get myself in that headspace again but yes a lot of appointments i'm doing a panel on lab grown diamonds for jewelers mutual i'm hoping to do some kind of book signing whether formal or informal people can just bring me their books and you know i think a lot of things are still up in the air but yeah i'm psyched i think people are starting to say let's meet in vegas and stuff and you're like okay oh yeah that's right it's it's really happening i gotta get the schedule together i know i'm booking my dinners and actually i've sort of booked out at least early on in the show with dinners and it feels kind of thrilling to think about actually meeting people and having kind of personal professional engagements and i get this sense and i mean a lot of people ask me if they think it's going to be busy if they think a lot of people go and i mean i'm guessing a lot of people are also waiting but i certainly know a lot of exhibitors are going i mean the couture show is going to be going on at the same time and a lot of people going for that i mean i know a handful who aren't going for that too so we'll have to see but i think it probably will feel very joyful for those of us who are there and are vaccinated and feel good about being out in the world i think that it will feel very special it'll be a different vegas by all means but i think it'll be a very memorable one and kind of things we do and the things we accomplish there will also be you know in some ways secondary to just the personal feeling of being reconnected to people yeah, it's exciting. And fortunately, I don't think COVID is going in the direction that we hoped it would be going a month ago, but it keeps changing week to week, day to day. So uh, hopefully it'll be in a good space a month from now. I think we can be optimistic about that, or we should be. I keep seeing reports out of Britain and India, which are ahead of us in terms of that Delta spike. And they've all seen caseloads come down steadily. So even though it's early days, I think there's reason to believe that that surge we've seen will be shorter lived than maybe we feared. Let's switch gears one sec, because you wrote about something that I'm curious about. I had not seen this. You wrote about Tiffany's new campaign, which sounds a little, well, it frankly controversial. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, they seem to be courting controversy and attention. They seem to enjoy that and want that. So the campaign they're putting up it's on their website and their Twitter feed, it says, not your mother's Tiffany. It seems a play or perhaps a ripoff of what's considered one of the great advertising taglines of all time, which is, this is not your father's Oldsmobile, right? Or this is not your mother's Tiffany. So it's pretty close. It all seems the brainchild of Alexandre Arnault. He's 29 years old and he's kind of overseeing the new the brand and its communications. And he's the son of LVMH chairman and owner uh, Bernard Arnault. He's very active in Tiffany right now. And, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I'm assuming being the chairman's son got him a bit of an in. I don't, I don't know if most 29-year-olds would get that position. So he's doing a lot to overhaul the advertising. And we saw the thing where they're not advertising in the New York Times anymore. They had this kind of standard A3 placement for years and years, and they got rid of that. And they had this joke on April Fool's Day, which I thought was clever, that they were going to turn Tiffany Blue to Tiffany Yellow. But, you know, that was clever and funny. And I think they beat it into the ground a little bit when they, <laughs> they're like, well, let's open a yellow store and let's just keep this going. But it's just interesting stuff. I think a lot of people, you know, especially mothers who do shop at Tiffany's were a little insulted. Like, are, are you insulting moms? Are you insulting old people? 
And I think this is kind of the tightrope that Tiffany has been walking for a long time, getting like Lady Gaga and Zoe Kravitz, you know, all the kind of hip young people to be its spokespeople. So it's definitely trying to hip up its image. And I think this is in many ways a continuation of that, probably more of a radical break than perhaps in the past. But it's certainly not out of character considering what it's been doing. It's just a question of does it come across as too cheeky and too insulting and too beneath the brand? Because I I think one of the things about not your mother's Tiffany, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, assuming this Alexandre was the one who came up with it. It's like, okay, yeah, it's not your mother's Tiffany, but it's actually your father's Tiffany because your father actually does, in fact, own Tiffany. But um, that's hilarious. Yeah, is my dad. Quite literally. Quite literally. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of like, how do you attract new consumers without alienating old ones? And I think that's the tightrope they're walking. And LVMH has done, I think they're acting more aggressively than people thought they were. And they're really kind of accelerating all the things that Tiffany was doing. And we'll just see how it works. It's a tough line to walk. Let's put it that way. It is. And I guess I'm a mom, but I don't take offense at that ad. I don't really personalize these things or it wouldn't drive me as a consumer to go tweet about it and get offended. But I guess it's kind of like not your mother's Tiffany. So what is so different other than just this campaign? Like what is actually behind it? What I was thinking, it's, you know, not your mom's Tiffany is a feature or a, a thesis statement, but it's like, you know, in the end, you have to have compelling product that people want to buy. I mean, and I think the imagery with the campaign was actually very well done, but it's like, do you have the compelling product to bring the younger consumers? And I mean, I think it's in a way, it's the opposite of what people expected LVMH to do. I think a lot of people thought LVMH would move Tiffany upscale and make it quote unquote more French and more exclusive. And and instead, I think trying to target younger consumers. You know, this is kind of interesting. And I, I had a conversation last week, not about Tiffany and not about jewelry, but I spoke to a longtime creative director named Lee Garfinkel, who worked for all kinds of agencies throughout his career. He's still a consultant. And he was talking about this ad campaign or commercial he did for Mercedes. He worked on the Mercedes-Benz account in the late 90s for about seven years. And I guess at the time, Mercedes sales were flagging because Lexus had come onto the market in Infinity and these kind of upstart luxury automakers were eating away market share. And they were open to ideas and advertising that were different than what they had consistently done, including using music and humor. It was fascinating because he was talking about using Janis Joplin's, oh Lord, won't you buy me? a Mercedes Benz. I remember those ads. Yeah. And so I had to rewatch the commercial. It's a super simple commercial. It literally just shows, you know, an E-class Mercedes driving across and this iconic Janis Joplin song. Well, when I was speaking to Lee, this creative director who created it, he said when he first showed it to the dealer group, they were like, oh my God, why is this crazy woman screeching about our cars? This is not who we are. Yeah. And it's not, it's kind of like an anti-Mercedes song. It's kind of like making fun of that, that mentality. Exactly. It spoke to and what he clearly said was, you know, Mercedes had been targeting, you know, its buyers were like in their 60s at this time. So they needed to look to a younger clientele. And so they were targeting those kids that had been at Woodstock and were now in their mid 40s. And so when they heard that commercial, they were like, yeah, this speaks to me. This connects to me. This music lets me know that Mercedes gets me in some way. And it ended up being very, very successful. And so I think at first, these campaigns that seem to really alienate 
alienate some core customer, in fact, do work. I'm not sure that that's going to be the case with Tiffany. And I honestly, Not Your Mother's Tiffany feels a little, I don't know, it doesn't feel that original to me because it, obviously we have a precedent for a campaign that's done that. It just feels like a little bit of a, couldn't you come up with something a little a little more clever, a little more original or fresh? I, I don't know. I'm not blown away by the, by the copy or the sentiment there, but I do think it's hugely important for brands to consider their next generation of customers. And you don't gain much without any risk taking, or you don't get anything. So I think fear of things not working is not a sufficient reason to not try them. So we'll see, but it's it's not blown away. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to sort of shift to another topic we wanted to discuss today, which is a brand that keeps coming up in my world. I spent a lot of time writing about watches, as anybody who's listened to me talk on this podcast knows. And I had a conversation with a fellow watch editor in Geneva a couple months ago. This was in the wake of a report that I believe it was Morgan Stanley had co-authored on the watch space. And Rolex had yet again gained market share. I mean, it's always been the dominant player for many, many years, but it gained market share throughout the pandemic. So it's like even more so than the Swatch Group combined. So the Swatch Group has all these different brands from Swatch all the way up to Breguet, including Omega, but Rolex is the dominant player. I guess Rolex and, and its sister brand or sibling brand, Tudor. But this watch editor that I was speaking to was like when she speaks to other watchmakers about how they can also gain market share or become more top of mind, she's like, don't compare yourself to Rolex. We all live on planet watchmaking, but they're on planet Rolex. The reason I'm bringing them up now is because we just ran a story that you oversaw about Tourneau opening up a Rolex boutique, the first ever, I guess, boutique in the US for the sibling brand Tudor in New York's meatpacking district. And it makes me think of Watches of Switzerland, which is the other big watch retailer in Manhattan that has two stores, one at Hudson Yards and one in Soho. And I'm thinking, God, there must be plenty of Rolex business to go around. I think there certainly is. It's just stunning how they can go from strength to strength. Any reason why it's been such a strong brand? This really could be a, and probably is somewhere, master's thesis, a business school case study, you know, many times over. And I mean, they've been around a long time and they were definitely among the firsts in, in many ways. The first date just, the classic date just, 1945, first watch to feature a date window. They've got the Submariner, the classic dive watch, GMT, the classic, you know, GMT dual time watch. They've just had these models that have been over and over success stories for them for decades on end, still continue to sell the Explorer, which they revamped this year. But, you know, it's a reference introduced in 1953 on the heels of the historic ascent of Mount Everest by Sir Edmund Hillary and the Sherpa mountaineer Tenzing Norgay. They've just been associated with that kind of event and that kind of superlative occasions for their entire history. So part of it is that their watches are not complicated mechanical wonders in the way that a Patek Philippe might be or a Breguet or any of these really high-end artisanal brands we see, they don't really do complications, but they do make watches that are decade in and decade out, like your daily beater. You can beat the hell out of that thing and it'll carry on. You know, this is Rolex. They are expected to just keep on running that sort of Timex ad, you know, takes a licking and keep on ticking. They've also, you know, they go against the grain in the sense that they're incredibly magnanimous as an organization. They have these incredible awards for artists and all kinds of 
of pioneers and explorers and they honor these people. But as a business, as an entity, they are the most opaque and difficult to penetrate company that I've ever encountered. They are owned by a foundation, a private foundation, the Hans Wilsdorf Foundation. I don't even believe that foundation has a website to this day. Or if they do, it's incredibly unavailable to your average Googler. So they've managed to keep their business incredibly private in an era when transparency is the order of the day and yet remain incredibly visible and obviously well-known and they do an incredible amount of advertising. They've just always managed their brand in a way that doesn't allow other people to penetrate it or question it. They control everything. They're just remarkable. And then they have the resources. And it's kind of, I wouldn't say generic, but it's kind of something that most people on, let's say, Wall Street, they're picking out a watch. Chances are they'll buy a Rolex. I mean, it's kind of like the go-to watch for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, that status that you can convey with a Rolex, you know, there's also different pockets of Rolex. You know, you've got your Rolex collectors that are like diehards whose grandfathers own Rolex who, you know, that idea of this is not your father's Rolex, it just would never happen because the very point is this is your father's Rolex and it was his father's Rolex and maybe even his father's before that. That sort of connection to your own personal legacy is one aspect of it for people. But the other, of course, is that very easy way to convey status. I mean, watch people always say, well, you can't drive your Maserati into the boardroom, you know, so you have your Rolex to say the same thing. And so it just builds, you know, they've managed to maintain that prestige and that what you can communicate with a Rolex through their advertising, through their incredible kind of calculus of supply and demand, because you cannot get these hot, hot, hot models on the primary market unless you've been buying Rolex from your authorized dealer for God knows how long. You cannot walk into your average Rolex store, whatever that is, and ask for the Daytona or the Submariner or the GMT or any of these new models that are out there. You just can't. So there is like an incredible calculus they apply to how many models are out in the market and are available because on the secondary market, those are fetching very often twice their current retail value. Yeah, I think they're very good at keeping it scarce. They could sell more, but they don't because they're long-term thinkers. Obviously, when you're private, you can do that because you don't have to maximize profit. So you can say it will hold a certain amount off the market because that will keep the demand going year upon year upon year. Whereas, you know, if you're a public company and you, you know, you're supposed to show growth every quarter, you know, you may not necessarily be able to do that. It's the kind of industry that rewards long-term thinking. They've obviously done very well with that. Yeah. Well, what else? You've been looking at a few things on the diamond supply chain, right? Yes. So this whole sustainability conversation, I mean, it keeps going on and there's a lot of interesting ideas about how to track diamonds through the supply chain. And I moderated a panel recently on this. And I mean, I think this is obviously the future, you know, especially with natural diamonds, though I think at some point it should apply to lab-grown diamonds too. The idea that, you know, you need to keep track of their origin. Alrosa just came out with this technology and a lot of other people have come out with similar technology. A gentleman, a New York dealer called Bruno Scarcelli has a whole plan with, I mean, it's, it's amazing the plan he's laid out as far as mine to market, as far as figuring out where the diamond comes from and then giving people a way to tell where it's from. So Alrosa has come out with this plan using nanotechnology on every diamond. And basically it's part of the diamond's molecular structure. The big problem was you put something on there and since rough turns into polished, you know, there's 
always a danger of whatever emblem you put on, you know, gets knocked off. Well, the idea here is that this thing infiltrates its molecular structure. I talk to some of the people who are involved in some of these other things and they say, well, you know, it's also possible that these things could get hacked. And they talk about, they put security things in dollar bills and then people figure them out. So they put another security thing on the dollar bill. So none of these plans are perfect and, you know, people are going to find a way around them, but it's definitely going to put a lot more transparency in the market as far as origin and traceability and trackability. And, you know, it's not just for these sustainability things. It's also people want to trace their diamonds so they're not stolen and so they find them. And there's a lot of applications to this technology. The other plan I heard is part of this used to be certified sustainable. Now it's certified sustainably rated program from SES Global Systems, which is Brandy Dow is going to be working for them soon. That's really interesting technology. Basically, it uses what's called laser abrasion to get a chemical fingerprint of every diamond. And what was actually interesting to me is the way the plan is currently envisioned. Now it's also backed up by a system from Serene called Diamond Journey. But the way the plan is currently envisioned is that you don't necessarily track every single diamond. What you basically do is you do random tests to make sure that the system is okay. And when I heard it, it's very different from how the diamond industry has been trained to think because the diamond industry has had so many problems with conflict diamonds and the Kimberly process and all this stuff. I think the diamond industry believes that to really track every diamond means tracking every diamond, finding out a way to track every diamond, even the small diamonds track everything. And one of the things SCS told me is that they track a lot of stuff. So they have a lot of programs and they track shrimp and they track apples and stuff. And like, certainly for shrimp, you can't test every single piece of shrimp in a thing. You can only do kind of random sampling and they're bringing that to diamonds. But again, it's not necessarily the way we've been trained to think as far as how diamond tracking should work. I thought that was interesting. And, you know, clearly there's so many programs on the market right now and there's just so much energy and enthusiasm and a lot of cool ideas using blockchain. And I mean, I think we're going to have a lot more traceability in the market. It's certainly something that I think governments want to see. I mean, right now, diamonds from the Merengue area of Zimbabwe are illegal in the United States. And yet it's completely likely that those diamonds are coming into the United States because we have no real way to track them. And again, if the U.S. government ever decided to really enforce that, you could have have a huge issue in the diamond industry. So the rate these things are progressing is, is is truly amazing. And I don't think any of them are perfect and they all have strong points, weak points, but we're definitely, I mean, the industry is changing so rapidly. It, it, it really is amazing to me. It is. I was just going to say, like in five years, this could all be standard operating procedure and we'll look back and say, wow, I can't believe for years we, we didn't have this. I think the way that jewelry has responded to not only the pandemic, but just to the introduction of technology and that embrace of it is pretty remarkable for an industry that's as old as time. There's always new stuff to talk about, which is pretty cool. Well, great to chat with you as always. By the way, I hadn't mentioned this. Our next episode will be dedicated to pre-Vegas. So anybody who is still on the fence, we're going to have a lot of updates for you about things coming to the show and stuff you'll be able to do and see and experience. And we certainly hope to see you there. I'm psyched. We're going to have some good times. I look forward to seeing everybody there. Take care, everybody. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.